On October 22, 1969, an unknown killer forced Martin Dumbler, his wife Patricia, and Patricia's mother, Mary Wilson, into an upstairs bedroom in the couple's home and proceeded to tie them up. What happened next is still a mystery over 50 years later. I'm your host, Michael, and this is Strange and Unexplained. All right, so first things first, we got to set the stage. The Dumblers lived in a two-story house along Beverly Hills Drive and Mount Lookout of Cincinnati, Ohio, a very affluent and charming neighborhood on the east side. They were prominent members of the community. Both were graduates of the University of Cincinnati and members of the Cincinnati Country Club. Martin worked as a sales manager at Chatfields and Woods Sack Company, a business started by his grandfather. He was in the process of taking over as president since his dad, the current president, was on the verge of retiring. The company wasn't doing too well financially, though. The need for sacks had lessened as of late, as you could imagine, with the introduction of cheap single-use plastic bags. The company was still afloat but was trying to shift into the new world of plastic. Though the company was struggling, this was not reflected in the Dumbler's lifestyle. They were still members of the country club lived in a very nice home, had very nice things, and seemed to have plenty of money. Or at least, they were really good at faking it. Patricia did work as a part-time model at Lillian's Dress Shop, but was very excited about an upcoming booking that she had gotten at a place called The Fox and the Crow, an upscale club in Cincinnati. She had just gotten the news and was due to start work within the next week. Mary Wilson, Patricia's mother, was staying over because Patricia's father, Frederick Wilson, had just suffered a heart attack and was in the hospital recovering. So it happened to be that very night. Late in the evening hours, an unknown person or persons entered the home. There were no signs of forced entry, and police are not sure if the family knew the killer or if he entered by gunpoint. Police do believe it was more than one person that carried out these crimes for several reasons. For example, cords were cut off of appliances around the house using a knife from the Dumbler's kitchen. The cords were then used to tie the victims up, both wrists and ankles. This seemed like a difficult task for a single person. They would have had to leave the victims to retrieve the cords, come back, and then tie each of them up. Or move around the house undetected and collect the cords before alerting the victims? I don't know, it seems odd to me either way. I think it is possible, though that the killer was, you know, maybe caught off guard when Mary was there, and being overwhelmed by the thought of being outnumbered made him feel the need to restrain them. Nonetheless, the victims were all shot in the head. Then, according to investigators, the killer left the crime scene and returned sometime later and stabbed Martin and Patricia. Martin was still alive, but Patricia was already dead from her gunshot wound. This here makes me think that this attack was personal. Mary may have only been killed because she was a witness. She is not thought to be an intended target due to her lack of injuries. Her cause of death was just a single gunshot wound to the head. Patricia, though dead already, was stabbed several times in the back and the chest. Martin was then stabbed twice in the chest, and that seemed to be the fatal blow. The cords were cut off the victims after the murders and then taken from the crime scene. The scene was cleaned, and the only thing left behind was a single partial palm print. Martin G. Dumbler III, who was just five at the time, and his four-year-old sister, Jane Dumbler, were asleep in their beds while all of this was going on. The next morning when they had woken, they attempted to find their parents, but the door to the Dumbler's bedroom had been locked. 
Was this an indication that the killer cared for the children? Or was it just to aggravate and hinder whoever was to discover the killer's handiwork? The children ran next door and told the neighbor, Miss Lobert, that they couldn't wake up their mom and dad, and they couldn't get the door open. Miss Lobert lets the children in and has them sit at the table for a few minutes. She was just about to head to the Dumblers when she heard Miss Bonner pull up and head inside. Ruby Bonner worked as a maid for the Dumblers. Moments later, Ruby came knocking on the door of Miss Lobert's house. She heads to the door expecting to find Miss Bonner waiting to take the children home. Instead, the woman was crying and seemed terrified. She begged Miss Lobert to keep the children inside and not to allow them to return home because something terrible had happened. When police started their investigation, they realized the bullets that had been used were repacked bullets. These bullets are usually used for target practice. They are cheap and made to splatter on impact. Martin was known to be a gun lover. There were several guns in the house. They were left untouched. Many of his friends had the equipment to repack bullets, but all of them were for repacking shotgun shells, allegedly. The shell found at the Dumbler house belonged to a 38 caliber pistol. Police question almost 300 people in this case, but have never come up with a suspect. Many people compare the Dumbler murders to the unsolved 1966 triple homicide of the Bricka family in Cincinnati. Both Gerald and Linda Bricka and their four-year-old daughter were found dead inside the home. Only a single palm print was recovered at the scene, just like the Dumblers. And though it sounds familiar, the two have never been tied together. The Bricka family murders also remain unsolved. So many question the possibility that it's the work of a serial killer. But no evidence has ever been found to prove or support this theory. It's understandable that the community was on edge, though. Just a month earlier, Cincinnati had suffered another gruesome attack. Four women had been gunned down in a local savings and loan bank by a group of three gunmen. A man named Joseph Hubner had taken his wife there to cash her paycheck and waited in the car for her. A few minutes later, he looks up in his rearview mirror and notices three men hopping into a car with what seemed to be pocketbooks in their hands including the bright red purse Joseph recognized as his wife's. He goes inside and discovers his wife, along with the bank teller and two other customers, all shot dead in the bank's vault. The killers made off with less than $300. To make it worse, the responding officer is the bank teller's husband, and they both had been terrified that the bank was being targeted and was going to be robbed. A guard had been posted outside the bank at night, but had recently been removed. The killings had taken place in broad daylight, and no guard was there. The man that the teller had been afraid of had come in weeks before and set up an account, but then closed it almost immediately. This man frightened the lady, and she informed her husband, the officer. There was really nothing more they could do, though. But this is the reason the killers were found so fast. Within days, the men were picked up, and all three were convicted to life. Even though these killers were caught and locked up, it understandably shook the community that another homicide with multiple victims would happen just a month later. Police do not believe the two events are connected. One strange thing that did happen with the Dumblers was that on the day of the murders, Martin had apparently mentioned to a co-worker that he had an important meeting with a man. He didn't mention who it was, and he left around lunchtime that day. Though police tried to find an appointment or a sticky note, they checked with his assistant, but as far as they could tell, he had no meeting that day, so nothing ever came of it. Or at least he didn't have any meetings he wanted anyone to know about, right? The motive for these murders is still not understood, as the robbery was apparently not the intention. There was expensive jewelry left on both women along with cash on the dresser and many other valuables in the house. None of it was touched. Was there a scorned lover we were all unaware of? Did a business deal go south? Was it a random thrill kill? It seems with the little there is to go on that any scenario is just as likely as the next. 
Now, over 50 years later, it seems the only way this case can be solved is if someone comes forward, if there is anyone left to come forward. In 2002, a Cincinnati local news station ran a story on the cold case, which brought in two tips from witnesses claiming a friend of theirs may have been involved. It is still possible to solve, police think, but they're going to need help from the public if they're going to solve this 50-year-old brain scratcher. All right, all right. I guess it's time. I gotta make a decision. I gotta say what happened. I have not listened to the Lauren synopsis yet. What do I think? This one really sucks uh, for deciding things because it's just so vague and there's they know so little about this that it could go so many ways. But on the basis of the stabbing, the fact that the killer came back, stabbed the husband and wife in particular, didn't waste any more energy or time on the mother-in-law, um, that alone makes me think that it's personal. I think it's somebody, maybe a maybe a business deal went sour, maybe it's somebody in the family who wanted to be next in line for the old family sack business. You feel me? Because here's something that I didn't include in the story, is that the family seemed to carry on with this rather easily. No one really fought for justice or screamed that there was an injustice. Uh, there was no, you know, sister or brother or uh, aunt or uncle or anybody that carried this on and it's still having, you know, vigils for the people. Like, no, none of, none of that happened. It was funny how the family just kind of went their own way, in my opinion. This is my, this is my speculative part of the podcast. You know, all this is just my opinion and what I found in in research and through talking with Kristen, and she she kind of feels the same way. That's what makes me think that it's something personal. This was an inside family hit. Someone who knew that's how they were able to do it in the middle of the day. Right? Just kind of makes sense to me. But uh, yeah, somebody who benefited from the old sack business, who benefited the most, that's where I'd start. That's my opinion. So let's hear from Lauren in this week's Lauren Synopsis. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like, breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like, breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. What's up, people? Lauren here. Here to get my thoughts on this week's Strange and Unexplained. The Mount Lookout murders that happened in Cincinnati, Ohio, over 50 years ago, around this time of year in late October 1969, when the Dummler family were brutally slain in their home. Martin Dummler, his wife Patricia, um, they were 29 and 27, and uh, Patricia's mother, Mary Wilson, who was 50, had all been stabbed and shot to death in their bedroom uh, in a, an odd way to commit a murder. They had been first tied up using electrical cords, like uh, TV cords and things like that from around the house. Apparently the killer had either grabbed a knife within the home or brought a knife to cut these cords and use them to bound up the victims. Um, they had then been shot and the killer had apparently uh, stuck around the scene for an hour plus, then returned to untie the bodies and then stab them. Uh, definitely... 
um, a psychopathic move, a, a serial, the move of a serial killer, a serial offender. There's no way this is the first time this person's committed this murder, in my opinion, especially when you consider how well they left no tracks behind, no fingerprints, no evidence, nothing was left behind. Um, marks on the wrist indicated they'd been bound and the killer had removed the bindings from the crime scene. So the bindings weren't even left, which would have left maybe behind hairs or fingerprints or something. This killer's very smart. Robbery was not a motive. Um, both women were still wearing their expensive jewelry. Um, and the killer had stayed in the house for at least an hour after the killings. And this is eerily similar to two other family murders that had occurred just three years prior in the same area. The Brika family and the Sims family both happened in 1966, also in fall, which is odd. Um, the Brika family, Linda and Jerry both died dead and, uh, were killed in their bedroom Linda had been stabbed six times in the torso, twice in the head, and twice in the neck, and had been placed on top of her husband. Also, the move of a serial killer. Um, this isn't uh, like you know a robbery or a killing to just get rid of someone. This is uh, a sick individual who gets enjoyment out of posing bodies, um, stabbing people after they're already dead. Um, Jerry had been stabbed four times in the back, twice in the head, three times in the neck. This is killers clearly getting off, um, on these acts. A sock had been stuffed into his mouth and marks showed that the, both adults had been bound with rope and possibly adhesive tape that had been removed from the scene. Eerily similar to the Dumbler family. However, there was a difference in these other two crimes in that there were children that were also killed at these, uh, at these other two murders in 1966 um, four-year-old Debbie had been killed in her bedroom, stabbed to death as well. Whereas in the Dumbler murders, there was two children in the home at the time that were, um, they were not harmed. They were in a downstairs bedroom. Thankfully, they were able to escape. Um, however, I don't, they, they never knew what had happened until the morning. Um, but unfortunately they found their parents dead and ran to the neighbor's house for help. There was also the Sims family, which I briefly mentioned, which was, a little ways away, it was 725 miles south of Cincinnati, um, but it was only a month before the Breaker murders, and it was also eerily similar. Um, Dr. Robert Sims was found lying on his bed, shot in the head. His wife uh, had been shot and stabbed while she was lying on the floor next to the bed. Next to her, uh, their young daughter, Joy Sims, who was 12, had been shot once in the head. She was also stabbed six times in the abdomen. Once again, robbery was not a motive. There was no jewelry that had been taken. It was at the scene still. And this all the same hallmarks of being bound, the, the bindings being um, taken with them, uh, with the killer. I, I find it hard to believe that these were not all connected. There's clear um, modus operandi here um, with the bindings, with the stabbings. After, so there's, it seems as though there's this killer kills and is like a product killer, kills and then and gets off on the stabbing after the victim is already dead. You see that with all three of these. They're all families, young young couples that are uh, in their 30s and late tw mid to late 20s and early 30s. They have young children, um, and the killer binds them, uh, shoots or stabs them to kill them, and then continues to stab them afterwards um, and takes every shred of evidence with them, doesn't leave fingerprints behind. All of these are unsolved. Um, to me, there was a definitely a successful serial killer working in this, in the uh, Ohio area, the Cincinnati area throughout the, the sixties. And who knows 
what happened, where where they went next, if they continued on their killing spree, if something stopped them. You know, you just never know with some of these serial killers that were successful for a while. Like they could have just coincidentally died in a car accident. They could have been arrested for uh, an unrelated crime and never connected to all the other crimes that they had done and locked away. Maybe they killed someone else in another state and they were just never connected to all these crimes and never talked about it. Um, But uh, it seems as though there's really not much in the way of DNA. Um, there There wasn't a whole lot of DNA preservation going on either at this time, I believe. So um, I'm not sure these will ever be solved, but I I think there's a clear correlation between these three sets of murders here and maybe some more that could be made to surrounding areas with similar um, murders uh, of families that were, you know, with with the same calling cards. But uh, yeah, that's my thoughts. Hope you guys enjoyed it. See you next week. Wow. Excellent synopsis, Lauren. Jesus. We're just gonna we're just gonna start letting Lauren host the show and I'm just gonna do Michael's synopsis at the beginning, I guess. I don't know. That's how I'm feeling. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Lauren, dude, fucking knocked it out of the park. But I, I still don't agree that it's the serial killer thing. I'm surprised you went the serial killer route. I just I just don't think it is. I, I really don't think it's a serial killer. Um he thinks the stabbings were like a brutal work of like a psychopath where I think the stabbing was just insurance. Like this person wanted to make sure that these people were dead. And also, a crime of passion could escalate into an excessive stabbing as well. Like I said, maybe a jealous family member, maybe a son-in-law who might be next in air to take over the business, uh, a brother, who knows. I just think if this this crime in particular was personal. Now the other one Lauren talked about, uh, the brick the Bricka family, or Brika family, I'm not sure. That I think was the work of a serial killer or at least an experienced killer. Um, and then you know the the children as well. Why were the children not harmed? Why were they not only not harmed but protected from seeing that? That just makes you think, you know, a family member that might have somewhat love, connection, blood relation to these children think, you know, it's not their fault. They're not in the way. I don't know. That's just how I read that. It's just how I read that. Either way, uh, this is a puzzler for a reason, right? This case has been around a long time. Uh, If anybody in the Cincinnati area, Ohio, whatever, uh, has any inside information, any major thing that we missed, hit me up. And I'll do an update on a later episode. All right, well, there you have it, guys. The Mount Lookout Murders. Uh, This week's episode was a suggestion by True Crime Guys listener, Ava. Right on, Ava. We appreciate that. I don't know about those True Crime Guys, though. Sounds like a couple of douchebags, if you ask me. (laughs) I'm just messing. We always appreciate suggestions here at Strange and Unexplained. And honestly, I think the last, uh, not counting the Sandu stories, I'd say the last four to five six uh, weeks episodes have all been suggestions. Guys, we are still rolling on suggestions, and we appreciate that very much. Um, if, if you don't know my wife, Kristen, she is one usually the first person, aside from me. I mean, I obviously, I see the suggestions on, um, you know, through the email, Patreon, social media, and then I take a glance at them, but really, she vets all the episodes. So what I do, I take a screenshot, I tell her who suggested it, I send it over to her, she starts vetting them, and then when she adds them to the calendar, then I start looking into them, right? 
So all of you that have got your suggestions heard, and th- those of you that haven't, it's Kristen's fault, okay? No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But we appreciate you guys, and just because we haven't got to your suggestion yet does not mean we're not going to do it. Uh, we have many more on the upcoming calendar. But a great way to leave a suggestion is in a review. Uh, leaving a review really helps other listeners find the show. It helps other people understand what we're about, you know, good or bad. And I want to give a shout out to a couple of reviewers this month, uh, or this week rather. Uh, Anon in KC, in Kansas City. Great place. It says uh, five stars. A great way to chill. I love listening to this podcast. Michael is very easy to listen to. I feel like I'm listening to a friend telling me a story of true crime in real time. Right on. Appreciate that, Anon. I'm glad to be your friend in true crime. Uh, also, want to give a shout out to Ramy95. Left a five-star review and says, Keep the music. In reference to episode number 71, where you answer some emails regarding Lauren's synopsis music, keep it. For every hater, there's a lover. That is so true. Remy, I'll drink to that. Let me get a sip of this water. I will drink to that, okay? If that ain't a dang truth right there. I swear to God, it's like you get you get some negative feedback on something, right? You make a change, and then you have four people that's like, what the hell? Why did you change? Just be you. Just be you. That's what we're trying to do on this show. That's what I'm always going to do. I'm always going to promote you being you, being strange. But uh, another great way to help the show, guys, is to sign up for Patreon. If you guys want extra content, I'm always releasing shit on Patreon. I feel like I'm in the studio every day now. But it's patreon.com slash podcast. And for just three bucks a month, you get access to another show I do with a good friend of mine, Andy. We do Strange Shorts every single Monday. If you look at last week's episode, it was Strange Shorts episode 50. I'll give you a good idea of what you're missing out on over on Patreon. There's 50 Strange Shorts episodes available, and new ones come out every single Monday. And because you join Patreon, I'll let you get access to these Strange and Unexplained episodes early on Thursdays, instead of waiting until Monday. And you also get access to Higher Thoughts with Michael. That's me. Every other Saturday. So quite a bit going on at the $3 tier on Patreon. And if you want, you can pay it all up front a yearly subscription, so you don't have to worry about those pesky monthly fees. I hate monthly subscriptions, right? But everything's subscription-based now. What the hell? But anyways, guys, uh, I'm getting I'm getting off course. Patreon.com slash podcast. Uh, number one way to support the show. And there's also a $5 tier if you're interested in the Sandu stories. I think I released the first three or four episodes of Sandu stories on the free platform, and they've only gotten better from there. The last one we did was on Edgar Allan Poe, and it is without a doubt probably my favorite one so far. And that is on the $5 tier at patreon.com slash podcast. All right, guys. Well, I appreciate everything that you do to support the show, whether you follow me on social media at podcast, uh, any emails that you send, I read all of them, and I will try to get back to you guys as soon as possible. I appreciate all the DMs on Instagram for suggestions. Um, everybody sharing the story, sharing the show. You guys don't know how much that means to me. I appreciate that very, very much. Otherwise, I think I'm done. Oh, oh, guys, I am in the process. If you are a fan of the intros of True Crime Guys, if not, you probably already tuned out. No big deal. <laughs> but if you are a fan of the intros of True Crime Guys, I got another Spotify album in the works. Um, I'm not sure what I'm going to call it yet. I was thinking about calling it Killer Mixtape Volume 2, but I might get a little more creative than that. Um, I'm really fond of these songs that I'm putting on here. Some of them uh, didn't make Volume 1 
for various reasons. I just felt like they weren't ready or I felt like, or I forgot about them, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> um, I've done quite a few intros. So uh, at this time, especially uh, you guys, if you're on Patreon, send me messages. Let me know if there's any favorites that you feel like have to be on this album. And uh, I'll weigh that out. But I think I already have about seven or eight keepers that I'm definitely putting on there. Um, and I hope you guys like them. And some of them this this time will be extended extended versions, maybe uh, guitar solos or maybe bonus verses, uh, things like that. So I'm very excited about this. Uh, and if you guys don't know, we already have an album available on Spotify, True Crime Guys Killer Mixtape. So if you, you have to search True Crime Guys under artist, not under podcast. It's kind of confusing. People are like, oh, I searched it and all it comes up is your podcast. Like, yeah, you have to click artist. Uh, it's, or you can type in killer mixtape and maybe find us that way. All right. All right. I'm done plugging stuff. Everything that I ever plug. Oh, we got merch too. It's down at the bottom underneath the description of this episode. Check out the True Crime Guys uh, link tree. It will give you access to all of the things we have to offer in the True Crime Guys universe. All right. I'm done. You guys be strange. Just don't be strangers. <laughs>